Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Well, will you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11? I know some of you are saying, are you still there? Yes, we're still there. Well, I was hoping you'd hurry up and get to chapter 12. Well, hang on. We're getting really, really close. We're going to start with verse 30 in a moment this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to talk about the chastening of God. The chastening of God. When I was growing up, there was a side to my parents that took years to understand. I knew that they loved me. I could not have had more loving parents than I had. I don't have a horror story. I had a mom and dad that you couldn't I mean, it's overwhelming. I could not have asked for a better mother and father. Loved the Lord, taught me and gave me a great heritage of trusting Him, and were just parents that loved me. My father never told me he loved me all the time, but he showed me. My mother was always hugging me and slobbering all over me and telling me she loved me. I knew they loved me. But there was a side to that love. It took me a long time as a child to understand. And that was the side of their chastening. I somehow, in my little pea brain mind growing up, I couldn't quite associate pain with love. Somehow that didn't equate. My mother, when I would do something wrong, would say, Wayne Allen, that was her favorite name to get my attention. Wayne Allen, now you go out there and get me a switch. Go get you a switch. Now, she would tell me to go get the switch that she was going to use to whip me with. Well, what do you think I did? I picked the smallest limb, branch that I could find anywhere. And I would bring it in. I could break it with my fingers. And mother would get so upset, she would go out and dig up the tree and beat me with the tree. I mean, but I, the pain. And I never will forget how she would do it. My father was a little different. Well, my mom. She, she would just cry all the time she was whipping me. And she'd say, I love you, Wayne Allen, I love you. I'm doing this for your good. I'm thinking, you love me? Well, quit doing it. I don't understand how pain somehow equates with love. Well, it took me a long time. One day, one day I became a parent, and now I do understand that. I do understand that when you love someone, you will go to great extremes to correct them and to put them back on the right path. You will spare no pain if necessary in order because you love them to see them enjoy life as it should be enjoyed. Well, it's the same way in our relationship with God. I don't know if you've discovered this or not. Oh, we love the songs. Jesus loves me. This I know. Yes, he does. He really does. But somehow we fail to associate his chastening with his love. You know, he loves us so much he'll bring great pain in our lives in order to correct sinful behavior. God does not allow a Christian, a child of God, to get away with sin. 
Now, you can write that down. Some people say, well, I don't know if I'm saved or not. Well, listen, one of the best ways you can ever know is by the chastening hand of God in your life. He doesn't let us get away with sin. He hates sin with a passion that I doubt if we will ever fully understand. He hates sin with that kind of passion. Many believers today take the chastening of God very flippantly. In fact, they seem to think that a loving God just could not do such things. I was watching the Doodah Channel, and I apologize for calling it that. I just don't know what else to call it. And because there are some really good people on that Doodah Channel, but there are a lot of Doodahs on the Doodah Channel, and I was watching that thing. My wife does not allow me to watch it when she's in the room with me because uh, it, what it does to me, I get so angry, I want to jump in the tube and say, what are you just said? That's not in the Word of God. And this fellow gets up and he uses an expression, and I've used it before. You know, God really spoke to me and convicted me. I've done the same thing. Isn't it funny when you're preaching and you see another preacher and you see yourself and you think, gosh, did I do that? I didn't say the same thing he said, but I used the same expression. And he used it in a real sarcastic way. And he said, would God, a loving God, allow sickness and suffering in his children's life? And he said, absolutely not. He said, that would negate the loving character of God. And I wanted to yell, no, no, it doesn't negate the loving character. It proves the loving character. Yes, God will bring pain in your life. Yes, God will cause us to suffer. Why? Because he's a God that loves us and he disciplines his children. This kind of warped thinking that a loving God could not bring pain into my life has caused people to misunderstand much of the pain and suffering they've had to go through in this world being his child. In fact, if you take God's chastening out of the equation, then we all lose a holy reverential fear of God. And what happens is, and what we're seeing happening around us, is we take God in such a flippant manner that we take sin lightly, and that's when our lives begin to cave in and all kinds of destruction can bring, come about. Let me say this now. As we talk about the chastening of God, and that's what we're going to be dealing with this morning. When we talk about the chastening of God in a believer's life, keep remembering my mother sitting on the steps weeping as she has to correct me because the chastening of God has got to be associated with his loving correction in our life. That's what we're dealing with as we walk through the scriptures this morning. Keep that thought in mind. In no way are we referring to the awful wrath of God that one day will be unleashed upon unbelievers and unrighteousness. That is in no way what we're saying. God's correction is in a different realm than that wrath that one day without any mercy will be dropped on this earth. It's a future wrath that is coming one day. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, if you want to turn over there, or 5 rather, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in verse 9, he says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a wrath he speaks of here that is a future wrath that is one day coming and that future wrath is not what we're destined for. He goes on to say in verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians 5, speaking of Christ, who died for us, that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. And the implication is forever and forever and forever. And so he says, we're not looking forward to this future wrath that is going to fall one day. That is not something that the Christian is destined for. However, we must understand that there is a present wrath that we will have to deal with. You see, not only are we saved from the 
power of sin or penalty of sin. We're saved from the power of sin and one day we'll be saved from the presence of sin which in effect will deliver us from the wrath that God is gonna drop on this earth without mercy upon sinners and upon unrighteousness. But the wrath that Paul speaks of in one situation is future wrath. There is a wrath, however, that we will deal with and that's the wrath of God mixed with his mercy. Remember the, the prophet in the Old Testament says, oh God, when you, when you remember, remember mercy when your wrath comes. And that's the way God always uses his wrath in our life. It's always mixed with mercy. He does hate sin. Thank God he has sent Jesus to deal with it on the cross. But he continues to hate those sinful choices that we make and therefore he continues to allow us to experience some of that wrath mixed with his mercy to give us an understanding of the life that he seeks for us to live. God disciplines his children. We used to have a sign in front of the church. The city finally made us take it down. I think it looks so bad. <laughs> you know those little signs that you put out in front and you have to run a big cord to? I think the cord was, was uh, a louder color than the sign was. But on the sign, we put a big sign out there one day, you are free to make whatever choice you want to make, but you are not free to choose its consequence. And what we were saying by that little sign was to let the world know that as believers, we don't get away with making sinful choices. That we invoke the very wrath of God upon our own lives when we choose to walk in darkness rather than to walk in light. It's not a wrath that's one day destined for these others, but it is a wrath. He does hate sin. He does hate sin. We've got to see that. And God chastens his own. In fact, turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's just make sure we see this. This chastening to, when it comes to believers is, is always for an eternal purpose. It's always to work our eternal good in our life. Nothing like the wrath that's gonna be unleashed on unbelievers. This is a different kind of wrath. It's, it's meant to correct, it's meant to instruct, it's meant to teach and to point us in the right direction. Hebrews chapter 12, verse five through seven. Now they were griping and complaining. Uh, they were Jewish and they were Christian and they wanted to go back up under Judaism because there were persecution coming in on them. The, and the apostle that writes this, we don't know who it is, but has a lot, a lot of tough things to say. And he says in Hebrews 12, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Now understand it's wording here. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord hates, he disciplines. Is that what it says? No. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. I can hear my mother now, I love you, Wayne, I love you. <laughs> That's exactly what he's saying. And he scourges. You know what the word scourge means? He'll beat the hide clean off. You look up the word scourge and see what you find. I mean, that's severe. That's painful. He scourges every son whom he receives. Why? It is for discipline that you endure. If there was no discipline, there would be no endurance. If the discipline is what drives us to the end of ourselves. The discipline is what drives us to the cross. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? You see the example that he uses? He says the same way a father disciplines his child, God disciplines his children. Now to what extreme would God go to discipline his children? And I want you to know the scriptures are not silent about this. And opinion means nothing here. What does God's word tell us about the extremes that God would go to discipline 
his people. Well, chapter 10 that we've already studied in 1 Corinthians has told us of one particular event in the life of Israel, which were his children in the Old Testament, that in one particular event, 24,000 of them were brought down, executed by divine God. Now you say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like a loving God. Now hold on. A whole nation was at stake. The nation had rebelled against him and God, in, in an effort to show them the seriousness of what they did, executed 24,000 of them. And what do you think that did? It woke them up. And that's why his purpose is, is so clear. It's always to correct. It's always to instruct. But I'll tell you what, when you stay in the Old Testament, it makes everybody feel better. Let's don't get into the New Testament. But the New Testament is not silent either. There were some divine executions. They're rare. They're very rare. And I don't want to scare anybody this morning. That's not what the service is meant to do. But to awaken us to the fact that God hates our sin. God hates it, hates it. It's cost him the very life of his own son. And when we choose to walk sinfully, it's going to cost us. And there is going to be a consequence. The times of any executions that God brought about in the New Testament, as I said, are rare, but they are recorded in God's word. Turn to Acts chapter 5 just to see if I'm right. Beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 5. This is the beginning of the church. This is the new church. Just like as Israel was being formed in the Old Testament, God had to do something in such a way that shocked the people into obedience. He did the same thing in the church. The brand new church that was growing up after his resurrection and ascension. And the day of Pentecost in the church now indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. God had to do something to shock them in the reality of the lifestyle there to live. He says in verse 1 of Acts chapter 5, Ananias and his wife, with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you've lied to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men arose and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now why? Why would God go to this extreme of two people in his church there in the early church? Verse 11, and great fear came upon a whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That's the key. You see, God shocked them with what he did in chastening his own. He shocked them into the reality in this particular context that he hated the sin of lying to the Holy Spirit of God. The word for fear is the word phobos. The word phobos is that which puts a terror in one's heart. But it puts such a terror in your heart that it makes you draw away from that which you're afraid of. 
Now, not necessarily God. In other words, when I was growing up, remember when your mama used to tell you not to put your hand on the hot part of the stove? And you've heard it over and over and over and over again. And I remember one day nobody was in the kitchen and I went over and I turned that little eye on and I wanted to see what she's talking about. And I took my little hand, stupid as I was, as rebellious and hard-headed as I was, and I turned my hand over and I said, hmm, it is hot. And I laid it down. Whoa, it is hot. And I remember, have you ever smelled flesh burning? And I could hear my mother saying, don't do it. But I did it. And I want to tell you something that did to me at a young age. It taught me to fear that stove. And that fear, instead of ruling me, became a servant to me. And that servant to me caused me to stay away from that which would hurt me. And that's exactly what is going on here. God had to show them, you don't play games with me. You don't sin and think you get away with it. And he has to shock them to bring them into reality to be fearful of that which caused the great pain in their life. Something needed to awaken the church of Corinth. We've been standing it now for, since January the 24th of 1997. We know the book very well. A church that was divided, a church that was fleshly, a church that had been taught and taught and taught and taught and taught but would not live up under the teaching that God had given to them. A pitiful congregation divided because of their flesh, desecrating anything that was holy and sacred unto God and particularly the Lord's Supper. That's where it begins to show itself in the public worship, in the Lord's Supper. Verse 20 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, they were doing the exact opposite of celebrating the Lord's Supper. They came, they told people when they left their house, we're going to church and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And Paul said to them in verse 20, therefore when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. That's not what you're really here for. That's not your heart intention. Everything but the main purpose of being there was what they came for. The 28th verse, he reminds them to examine themselves. Verse 29, he says, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And that little word rightly there is just inserted. It has the idea of thoroughly. In other words, if you don't thoroughly examine yourself, and what he talks about there as we've already looked at is not only your relationship with God, but as reflected in your relationship with other people. Would you just stop and think for a second how many Christians take the sin of gossip, the sin of a, a, bitter, a bitter spirit, the sin of criticalness in their, in their life, they take it so flippantly, they don't even consider that when they examine themselves thoroughly and yet they'll come to church and act as if everything's okay and God says you don't get away with that kind of sin. Therefore, you should examine yourself thoroughly of course, if you don't, you bring in judgment upon yourself. We shared last week that one of the things it really meant was your relationships with others. You know, it's amazing to me. You can go from place to place, and any believer that's there will agree with you that you should examine your relationship with God. Oh, yes, 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 if I've sinned, if I'm right. And that's, that's, that's part of it. They'll agree with you. But you take it to the next level. What about your brother? What about your brother? They don't think, seem to think that's important, and yet that's the very thing that's dividing churches everywhere you go. Well, Paul wants to correct this. The believers at Corinth evidently thought that God wasn't gonna judge them why he hasn't done anything yet. They didn't even know, as they were reading the letter Paul had written to them, God was already judging them, and they had completely missed it. They couldn't see the judgment of God that was going on in their life.
There are three things that I want you to see this morning. First of all is the presence of God's judgment in the lives of believers. It's always going on, whether you know it or not. You see, in your mind, you may think it's going to behave one thing, but God has a million different ways in which he brings judgment into our lives, chastening into our lives. Look at verse 30. For this reason, he said, the very reason that you're not judging yourselves rightly, the very reason that you're divided, the very reason of the bitterness and all the things that's going on in your lives, he says, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. It's interesting to me, this was going on right in their midst and they didn't even recognize it. They didn't see the chastening hand of God which was all around them. Now look, for this reason, many among you. The among you is the group there he speaks to that's desecrating the Lord's Supper. Those who are coming, partaking of the Lord's Supper, not having thoroughly examined themselves. Of that group, many of them were weak, many of them were sick, and many of them had already died. Now, the significant thing also about that first phrase is the word many. Uh, the Apostle Paul does not tell us how many. He just gives us a, a clue by the little word he uses there for many that means that there are more than, than, than you would think. There, there are several. They're not just one or two. There's several that are weak, several that are sick, and several that are dead because of their flippant way they've treated their Christianity and the flippant way they have dealt with the Lord's Supper. God was already sending a message and they couldn't see it. Notice the progression. For many are weak, many are sick, and many sleep. You know, it's interesting to me, that little progression, and I'm not sure if I'm reading something into it. You check it out for yourself. I'm never the authority of the final word. The word of God is. But what I see in it is a progressive way in which God tried to get their attention. You know, if I was God, and thank God I'm not, <laughs> and thank God you're not, we'd overdo it or underdo it. I'd just go ahead and just ax them, execute them. But it seemed like he moved in a progression here. Weakness first. Okay, you won't get right. Sickness. Okay, you won't get right. Death. It's, almost, it's not as if he just stepped in and executed everybody. But there was a progression here. Weak, sick, and dead. Now, the first sign of God's chastening that they had completely missed. They thought it was some physical answer, some other answer. The first sign was that many of them were weak. Now, that little word weak is the word asthenis. It's the word used many places in Scripture to be translated as sickness. It's interesting, asthenis. Let me show you two different passages. You might want to write them down or turn to them. Matthew 25, verse 39. And Jesus said, and when did you see me sick? And the word he uses for sick there is the word asthenis. Even though it's translated sick there, it's translated weak here. And it's a reason for that, by the way. Or in prison, you did, did you come to see me? Then in Matthew 25, verse 43, he says, I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Same word. So it's translated, austenis can be translated weak or it can be in certain contexts translated sick. But in other places it is translated weak. In Matthew 26, 41, he says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? You already know it. Weak, word austenis. It's interesting, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians 12, 22, on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary to the body. Can't wait to get to that passage. So you see the same word translated as sick, the same word translated as weak. Now this presents an intriguing situation because you've got the word weak and sickness in the same verse. 
The word asthenis translated weak, but there's another word there. That's trans, it's, it's arosti, and it's the word translated sick. It's a different word. Huh. Now, why are there two different words, and what are they trying to say? Is one sick and another sicker? <laughs> I mean, what's he trying to say? Why does he use two words there? I love the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. There's a reason for that. Matter of fact, Liddell and Scott, if you've ever studied Greek, you know that they're some of the tops when it comes to lexicographers, and they, they say, and also Aristotle back in his day, they say that that second word, sick, and the first word, weak, are distinctly different here in this context. That the word weak, the first word that's used here, means to be emotionally, spiritually, physically weak, just drained, even could do with a psychosomatic type of thing. But when it comes to the word sick, he said that has more to do in this context with chronic disease, something that's literally affected the body and there is a sickness, there is a disease. It can be specified as a disease. It's something that's chronic in their life. Hmm. So the picture I get of God's judgment moving in the church of Corinth, and I, again, I don't want to read anything in the text, but the picture I get is the first signal that they missed, they completely missed it, was just that emotional and physical and spiritual weariness that began to set in amongst their lives. And God is saying to them, there's sin in your life and you won't deal with it. And you thought you needed a pill to correct this. What you need is a repentant heart and you'll see the vibrancy of God come back into your life. Oh, you won't get right? And then God says, all right. Since you won't accept this is my judgment and it's the best I can do to get your attention. Oh, no. He said, I've got something better. Sickness. And sickness begins to move into the congregation. Sickness of such a kind that was a chronic illness. An illness that had set in amongst the people. And then God says, is that not enough? Do you not realize that you can't play games with me? All right. And then there's some timely executions that God brings to shock the church back to the reality of how much God hates sin and what it's cost him with his own son dying on the cross. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick. And he says, and a number sleep. The word for number there is, is, is an interesting little word. It's the word hikanos. And it's the word, the word hikanos means a sufficient number. In other words, not just one or two. There's a sufficient number of you. I mean, sufficient enough that, I, that, that you already know about it that have dropped dead in the congregation because of your unwillingness to treat God and his word as sacred. Now let's look at this word sleep because it's an interesting word. He said many are asleep. Why, Wayne, do you say the word sleep means dead? Now I want to tell you something straight out. When the word sleep is used to describe death, and it is in many places, sometimes it's used just to be physically asleep. But when it is assigned the task of describing somebody who has died it is never used of unbelievers. It is only used of believers. Now that is significant here. You can check it out yourself. And there's a reason behind that. Because with the death of a believer comes the certainty of a future promise of the resurrection of his body. That's why that particular word is not ever used with lost people. It's only used with believers when it's assigned to describe a death. Let's look at it. It's a beautiful promise. Actually, the promise is in the word. When Stephen died in Acts 7, 60, and falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell 
asleep. Now the body fell. He was stoned. The body fell. What happened at that very moment? Do you think the spirit went with the body? We know from another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that at the moment of death, the very moment the heart stops, the very moment there's no more breath left in the body, at that very moment, the spirit goes on to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a divine departure. Paul said that and people missed it. He said, the time of my departure has come. They thought it simply meant his physical life on earth, but no, they could walk by his grave every day. He's still with us, but he's in the grave. And Paul says, no, no, there's a departure. I'm going on to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. The very moment that a believer dies, his spirit goes immediately into the presence of the Lord Jesus. That's why Paul said in Philippians 1:21, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain, why? Because I live by faith here, but I live by sight there. I walk right into his presence. But now wait a minute. Why would that word asleep be assigned to the body then? Is there a soul sleep? No, I just proved that. Spirit goes to be with the Lord. There's no such thing as a soul sleep. Come on, get your theology straight. But there is a word asleep assigned just to the body of a believer. Why? Well, because it's a picture in itself. <laughs> when you lay down, and go to sleep, you rest, do you not? But when you have finished resting, what do you do? You get up. The body that lay down does what? Gets up. I used to have a preacher, and I asked him one day, I said, where are you going? He was going to a funeral. I knew that, but I don't know why I asked him. I, sometimes that's just a rhetoric question. I said, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to plant a body. <laughs> and I said, well, don't tell the family that. I don't think that'll go over too good. And you know what? I thought it was kind of cursed, and I, I mean, I thought you know, kind of, you know, it wasn't good. But you know, later on, I found out that he's exactly right. When you plant something in the ground, what do you expect it to do? Get up. Why is the word asleep only assigned to the bodies of believers that have died? Because there's a future promise of our redemption. Our body has not been redeemed yet, only positionally. Experientially, it hadn't happened yet. That's the day when Jesus comes for his church and what is the first thing that's gonna take place? The dead, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, the dead in Christ shall do what? Shall rise first. And those bodies will be changed and glorified and clothed their immortal spirit. This word of sleep is powerful. This word sleep never is used of an unbeliever. So you've got to remember the context that we're in. God killed some people in the church of Corinth. But now remember something. He did it to correct a situation. Did he do it to, to eternally separate them from himself? No way in the world. He could have never have used the word sleep. Even though he took them out of this life, he still had the guarantee of the next life. So you see, we, we have to understand something here. We're not speaking of eternal separation. There's some people who think that, but that's not what he's saying. He could not have used the word sleep and be talking about unbelievers and being separated from God. What he's saying here is that he took them out, out of this earth. It's almost like he looks down and says, Wayne, I will not allow you to be a mockery to me any longer. You're out of here. But the flip side of that is I'm in his presence to live with him forever and can look forward to the resurrection of my body one day because God does not tell you something that he does not fulfill. He's faithful to his promise. Now, there are reasons for people being weak, sick, and dead that are not because of personal sin. And before I go any further, I think we need to camp out here for a second or two and make sure you understand it. There are three basic reasons for weakness, sickness, and death. First of all is original sin. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but we live in a fallen earth. You don't believe that. Oh, talk to the environmentalist. 
and talk to the tree huggers and find out if you think there's any problems on this earth. And every one of them foolishly think they can correct it, which is ridiculous. Only the Christians in that area know that we can do whatever we can do to preserve, but only God can correct the situation. And the correction will be a world that will burn and be purified, and then there'll be a brand new earth and a brand new heaven. That's going to correct it. But they're telling us that, you know, protect a pond because that's the home of a little fish somewhere. And before Woodland Park can ever think about building, you must spend goo-goos of dollars removing muck from this place to this place so that we will preserve the whatever's in there that we can't see. But original sin has caused the problem, folks. Not only do we live in a fallen earth, and anybody can, knows that, the famine, the, the things that go on in our society, that the creation groans, as Romans 8, but this fallen earth has affected us. We're going to be weak because of other things, not personal sin, original sin. As long as you're a resident on planet earth, don't try to get out of suffering and, and, and sickness and things like that. You're going to be bitten by mosquitoes, especially my wife. Dinah can go into a county, there's one mosquito resides there, and it will bite her. I don't know, it's amazing to me how mosquitoes just go. I guess she's so sweet, that's why it bothers her. It just never does bother me at all. <laughs> You're going to get a mosquito bite sometime, and it's going to hurt you. You're going to get a bacteria, and that bacteria is going to cause problems. When I had my ulcer, I remember I, I wanted it so bad to be, to be uh, a bacterial ulcer because then I could say, yeah, but it's because of original sin. But the doctor looked at me and said, Wayne, it's not because of what you're eating. It's because of what's eating you. <laughs> oh, yes, I have to deal with this, don't I? Okay, so we're going to get sick down here because of original sin. All of us the other day were just over shocked by Emmett Wilson's quick home going. And I say home going because he was only a stranger here. He got home before the rest of us. But I tell you what, it shocked me back to the reality. The greatest reality of the fact that we live in a fallen earth, walk into a cemetery and just walk and look at the tombstones and it'll continue to remind us we live in a fallen world and because of original sin, there's gonna be sickness, there's gonna be suffering and there's gonna be death, period. Woe be unto the person who tries to stand before a group and say that they don't have to have any more suffering or sickness. They never say though, do they? Or death. It's funny how they just conveniently leave that out. Original sin. But the second reason because we are weak and sick and dead is because of God's wanting to make his works manifest. Case in point. Turn to John chapter 9, verse 1. Case in point. It's a man born blind. And of course, all the disciples thought that the reason he was born blind was because his parents had sinned. <laughs> oh, brother. He, I didn't think they had the television back then, but I guess they did. John 9, verse 1. This didn't have enough faith of the parents, and so therefore he was born blind. Bless his heart. I'll I tell you what. John 9, verse 1. It says, And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? <laughs> this man or his parents that he should be born blind? See the mindset that they were in? Same mindset. Nothing new under the sun, folks. Verse 3. And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. This man was destined to be born blind simply for the purpose of the Lord Jesus healing him and to show and point to the fact that he truly was the son of God. Wow. Well, Wayne, you can't find a death in scripture that was that way. Oh, yes, I can. 
John chapter 11, the man's name was Lazarus. Did the Lord Jesus know that he was going to die? I reckon he did. Matter of fact, when, when they told him, said, hey, he's dead, and he stayed two more days. He'd already, when he got there, he'd already been in the tomb four days. Martha and Mary had a fit with that. Martha, the outspoken one, always has her foot in her mouth, came out and said, well, Lord, if you'd have been here, it wouldn't have happened. Mary, the little quiet one, said the same thing. And the Lord Jesus said, this is so that the Son of Man should be what? Glorified. And what did he do? He raised him from the dead. You see, there are times when sickness and weakness and death fit into a plan and an order that we don't even have a clue about. And we've experienced some of that even in our own church. What you do, you back away and you leave it alone. And you don't try to put everybody into that category. You just simply say, Ooh, we have seen the works of God made manifest in this person's sickness. And don't try to take the next person who gets sick and put him into that category. God may not have him in that category. But there's a third way in which weakness, sickness, and death come, and that's what we're looking at in our text. It's directly because of sin. And what I would think that Paul would want them to know is he would say to the church of Corinth, now listen to me, listen to me. Some of you are weak and some of you are sick and some of you are dead, and it has nothing to do with what I'm saying. It has nothing to do with your personal sin. But then he would quickly add, but there are many of you that are weak and many of you that are sick and many of you that are dead, because exactly of what I'm saying. It's personal sin in your life and you've taken your Christianity flippantly, you've tried to play games with God and God has shocked the whole body by what he's doing in your life to move his chastening hand among you. There's a progression of that judgment. Weak, sick, and asleep. You say, well, Wayne, how can I take all this and ingest it and go out of here? I'll tell you how. If you get weak this week, physically, I'll tell you what, most of my weakness this summer has been because of this humidity. I was up in Spokane, Washington in the part of June and it was, it was awful weather. Zero humidity and it got up to 64 one day. Oh man, it was tough. I came back home and I felt like I had stepped off the plane into an oven. And it hadn't quit, has it, this whole summer. And that has made me physically weak. I, humidity just overwhelms me. I guess I'm so large and I know, lose weight. Well, I hadn't lost weight yet. So anyway, he's working on it. But the first thing when you're weak or you're sick or you're dead, no, if you're dead, you don't worry about it. But if you're weak or you're sick, <laughs> if you're dead, you waited too late. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> but if you're weak or if you're sick, the first thing that I think as Christians we ought to do is to check in with God and say, God, is there any personal sin in my life that I've been unwilling to repent of that's caused this weakness and caused this sickness and deal with it? That's a, that was the situation in James. If there be any sin among you, then it shall be forgiven. You see, we don't even see it this way. This is why some people are trying to explain away all sickness and weakness as if it's just something from the devil and we've missed a very key part of their theology. Sometimes it is because of personal sin in a person's life. God was judging them daily and they didn't even know he was around and the apostle Paul had to expose the whole thing. The presence of the chastening of God. Ask yourself the question. You physically, spiritually, emotionally, just weak, just, ugh. well, could it be that you have played a little game with God and God says it's time for you to wake up and I'm going to shock you by what I can do in your life to get your attention because I love you. You're my child. Well, some of you are looking at me like a calf at a new gate. I better move on. 
the presence of God's chastening. But secondly, the prevention of God's chastening. I, I guarantee you, somebody's sitting here thinking, woo-hoo, I don't want that in my life. What can I do to escape the chastening hand of God? I don't want sickness and I don't want weakness and I certainly don't want to be executed <laughs> so that the body would be shocked. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. Is that simple or what? Now he puts it in a tense here. The, the verse 29, we saw the word diacrino, which means to discern or to judge, to distinguish properly in, a, in our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And it's the same word that's used here. In other words, if, if we're gonna continue to go around with unconfessed sin, this doesn't mean perfection. This doesn't mean you won't sin next week once, once you've dealt with this. But what it does mean is when you have sin, because you're constantly thoroughly examining yourself, you'll deal with it so that God doesn't have to step in and deal with it. My mother, how many times? She said, Wayne, Wayne. It's almost as if she was saying, stupid, hey, look at If you just wouldn't do these things, we could really enjoy a relationship here. It's almost like God looks down and says the same thing. Guys, come on. If you would examine yourself thoroughly, why are you worried about this? You won't have to worry about this because you're judging yourself. You've become the smallest of courts in the land. You've made your own judgment. Well, but if we judged ourselves rightly. The word is in the imperfect tense. And the imperfect tense means it's very similar to present tense and he's speaking to them. And he says, now listen, the weak, sick, and the dead wouldn't even be a reality to you because of this personal sin if you had been continuously, in perfect tense means you were continuously judging yourself. That's the way we're supposed to live every day. That's why we draw a little circle when we come in here. But hopefully that's not the only time we do it all week long. We're to constantly be thoroughly examining ourselves as to our relationship with God and as to our relationship with others when we allow our relationships to others to be divided. And I want to tell you something, folks, and I've said it, I've said it for 17 years, and I'm going to keep saying it. The most important thing to God is not your agenda, not the ministry, not this church, not buildings, but your relationships to each other because when you get to heaven, that's the only thing that's going to remain. And if you think you can keep skipping churches or go to this one or that one or the other or do this or do that to escape having to deal with it, you've got another thing coming. And it means you have not learned to thoroughly examine yourself at all times so that we should not be judged. That's in the imperfect tense and that's in the passive voice. So if you'll continuously judge yourself, you won't have to be continuously judged, is what he's saying. You don't have to fear this, but God is a corrective God. God is a loving father and what father would not correct his children? So therefore, God's going to correct us and he'll use whatever severe measures is, is necessary. Again, this is not the eternal judgment. This is not what we're talking about. If somebody in here sitting thinking, oh, I'm going to lose my salvation. I have not said that. But the reason I'm doing this is because lately I've been heard differently than what I've said. It's amazing what people hear that I did not say. John 3, 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So if you have believed in him, continue to believe in him and trust him, then hey, forget it. The judgment already fell on the lamb and therefore it's not gonna fall on you. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a God who loves his children and would God go to the measure of death to shake up a church? Yes, he would. He has, he's proven it. It's rare, it's rare. 
It's in a situation, both contexts, even in Israel and in Corinth, when a church had gotten, or the people of God had gotten so dulled to who he is and his holiness that finally he had to shock them back to reality and bring fear in their hearts so that they would, the next time they chose to, to sin in that area of relationships, they would back off and say, whoa, no, no, that burned me last time. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to properly, thoroughly examine myself. Well, I had more to say. Sometimes I say that, and I'm really not telling you the truth because I don't have another thought in my brain, but I had a whole lot more to say this morning. But my time has just left me 18, 17, 16 seconds I have left. At least I know where I am. See, I got a clock. I did a, I made a choice last night that's cost me today, big time. Now, it's not going to be in the sense of being weak, sick, or dead, but it's, but to show you an illustration, I had a hearing aid battery blowout Wednesday. Now, Wednesday, but I studied on Thursday and Friday, so who needs a hearing aid? I mean, who, who am I supposed to listen to? The computer? Yesterday I also studied and I just still didn't need it. And last night it dawned on me I don't have a battery for my hearing aid. Yeah. But I said, you know, I don't want to get, we just got a new chair at our house. I, folks, listen, it's going to cost you, but I might let you come over one at a time and just sit. I want to see who the men are in this church. My feet barely touch the floor when I'm sitting in this chair. This is a man's chair. It's leather. Ooh. I could put a drink on this side. And one, Roger, you would love this chair. I mean, it's, it's got room. And that thing came in Saturday morning. And I want you to know, I was sitting in that chair. I sat in that chair yesterday <laughs> almost nine hours. <laughs> it's a recliner. It's got that smooth leather feel to it. Kick that sucker back. Woo-hoo! I mean, it was wonderful. And I was sitting there and the thought went through my brain. You know what? You need to go get you a hearing aid battery. <laughs> and my body said, not on your life. <laughs> We're enjoying this. And I thought, well, you know, I'll just go out Sunday morning and get me one. Have you tried to find something that's open on Sunday morning? I drove for 30 minutes this morning. There's nothing except over in East Ridge, and that was too far to drive. So I've been preaching in a tunnel with carpet wrapped around it all this whole service because of a choice I made to satisfy my flesh last night. And God says, What's the problem that you don't understand this? The measure of your consequence has everything to do with the measure of your choice. And I'm faithful, he says, to the church of Corinth and to us to bring chastening into your life. You just think you've gotten away with it. Matter of fact, you ought to look around. You might be being judged right now and don't even know it. You know what one of the judgments was to Israel? Prosperity. Why they thought it was a blessing. Didn't even know it was God's judgment in their life. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 